Before you hand over the keys, with host Anne-Marie Hayes, this is episode one, Learning to Drive, with guests Robin Robertson and Tim Bailey. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Anne-Marie Hayes, and 13 years ago, my daughter was 13 years old. I was the, I had my own corporate training company with customers like GlaxoSmithKline, Sony, Bell Canada, and Ticketmaster. Prior to that, I was the national sales manager for computer service company, had no interest in driving at all, except to get in the car to go from one point to the other. But then I had a conversation with a friend of mine that changed my life. She's an actuary. Actuaries are the brainiacs who figure out how much you should pay for life insurance based on all kinds of statistics. And we were having a glass of wine and I said to her, so what's my life expectancy? And she said, well, you're in reasonably good health and a non-smoker, so somewhere around 94, 95. And I was shocked. And I thought, I said to her, you know, I thought the number for women was more about 78 to 80. And she said, well, if you look at everybody from birth, that's true. But once you get past 30, the number goes way up. Well, my daughter was 13. So I'm wondering, what's this magic number about 30? And I said, why? And she said, well, you know, there are lots of different reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is that too many young people, teens and young adults, make risky choices and bad decisions, and they die too, they die too soon. Well, I mean, I was, I've got one daughter who I adore, and I had to do something about that. So I started researching everything I could think of that might affect her. And when I got to driving, that's when I realized that this is the number one cause of death and injury to teens and young adults in North America. And it's so easily changed. And that changed my life. Um, I kind of jumped into it. I became a driving instructor for a year. I worked for um, Canadian Tire, their Drivers Academy. Most people won't even know they had one. Uh, but I was their lead instructor for a year right out of training. Um, I started a company called Teens Learn to Drive, which is a nonprofit based in Mississauga, Ontario, with a lot of information about uh, teens and learning to drive. We do all kinds of wonderful things. Take a look at the website. There are just so many ways that parents can impact teens and driving. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about helping parents understand um, a more about the importance of learning to drive. I mean, your teen's going to be driving for the next 60 years. This is a critical life skill. And for most people, it's the most dangerous thing we do every day. But so easily we can change this. So this is not, we're not going to scare you with a whole bunch of stories. We're really going to help you understand the issues and provide you with some tools and some discussion points um, so that you can help your teens become really safe drivers for the rest of their lives. So today I have a um, uh, two wonderful people with me. I have Robin Robertson, who is the president and CEO of TURF, which is the Traffic Injury Research Foundation in Ottawa, Canada. And I have Tim Bailey. He uh, was the captain of Surrey Fire Services, but is now um, the BC PFFA vice president, which I assume is BC Professional Firefighters Association, Vice President Emeritus. And of course, I mean, it, Tim's not here to talk about fighting fires, but fire trucks are often the first 
responders when there's a crash or an incident happens. And plus, Tim is also very involved with a group that is now with TURF called Drop It and Drive. So today we're just going to talk about teens and driving, teens and young adults, and uh, some of the issues around driving. And I guess the first thing in, uh, that I want to talk about is how complex driving is. Um, Robin, do you want to talk a little bit about that, like all the things that we have to do when we're behind the wheel? Sure. Thanks, Anne-Marie, and, and thanks for having us here today. Um, so driving is a divided attention task in and of itself. That means you're dividing your attention across a couple of different activities. One is visually uh, scanning the road and, and listening for important information. Then there's the motor control of the actual vehicle. And then there's the thinking part, right? Once you uh, get all that information coming at you on the road, you have to decide what to do with it. Do I change lanes? Do I speed up? Do I slow down? So we often become very comfortable as adults driving because we do it every day. It's almost like a rote behavior where we feel like we do it without thinking about it. Uh, but for young people learning to drive, it's incredibly demanding to try and put that thinking, that seeing and that motor control all together uh, and make it work so that they can drive safely. Well, I remember when I learned to drive and, you know, you're just learning how to steer and you're learning that to be watching the road. And then someone would say, OK, well, now you have to control your speed. And it's like, my God, you want me to do another thing? If there's a lot to do. And that's before you start to talk about trucks on the road or high speed driving or any of those other things. Tim, I know your background that you've been, you were a first responder for many, many years. And Karen Bowman, who works with both of you, shared a story with me that I would like you to tell about young people in driving. So this happened in 1997, okay? And, and it was, it's a pretty, it sticks with me pretty good because my oldest son was in grade 12 that year and graduated. So. Uh, what happened is Earl Marriott Secondary School is on a four uh, a four lane rock in Syria. On the other side of the road is a park. So what happens at noon? All the high school students uh, get out, they cross in a crosswalk, go over to the park. So Tula was uh, at noon was uh, going to cross to uh, to the park. The first two lanes on her left, uh, the cars yield. Uh, the next two lanes, uh, the third lane over, uh, car yield and the fourth lane. So Tula entered the uh, crosswalk and at the same time, she was in grade 12. And at the same time, a fellow grade 12 student and a rugby player uh, had just had his parents buy him a brand new five liter Mustang. And was going to show everyone just how fast his car went and uh, accelerated quickly and struck two struck her so hard that uh, she cartwheeled, went above the traffic light, hit the telephone pole and slid down dead in front of the whole school. So you can imagine, um, you know, the school board flooded the school for the next few days with counselors and all that. But the most interesting thing that came out of this horrific event was, um, I remember I said this young man was a, a rugby player that for the next month, uh, one at a time, 24 hours a day, uh, they they stayed with this young man. It was a suicide watch. You can imagine how hard it was killing their friend in front of everyone, which included 
her brother. Which brings up an incredible point, and that is that when somebody um, is severely injured or killed in a car crash, um, it affects, it's not only that immediate family, it affects everybody. The waves of um, emotion and life-altering um, change are really broad to whole communities and beyond. It's not just one number on a chart. It's the life. It's, it's the impact on the community is enormous. The most challenging things I think as young people learn to drive is the idea that it can't happen to them. Um, and yet it does happen every day. So as young people, we have that sense of being invincible um, and we're willing to take, take risks and that's uh, you know biologically driven. But the reality is um, you can never predict the unexpected. Um, and, and that's what makes driving such a high risk factor is if you're not paying full attention, if you're not uh, looking at everything that, go, that goes on around you and prepared for that unexpected, then it's very difficult um, to avoid a collision. And for young people, there's just the thought that it won't happen for them. Um, and the reality is uh, it does, as you said, road crashes are a leading cause of death for young people, uh, not just in Canada, but in many jurisdictions around the world. That's true. And the other thing that I learned on this journey that I've taken is that the human brain doesn't uh, mature until around age 25. So for young people, in many ways, that's a great thing. Um, they're out there, they're meeting people, they're trying new things. Uh, it, that is really a good thing. When it comes to driving, not such a good thing. Because like this young man, I mean, prone toward uh, risky, I mean, kind of showing off for friends, um, that sort of thing, and, and not really understanding consequences. Um, invincible. One of the things that we on collision sites is, you know, that, that, you know, most of the time, it's not the driver that suffers the horrible consequences, it's the passenger. And, you know, that uh, many times they'll be out out of the vehicle and that and we'll be working on the on the collision site and uh, you'll hear them going well i didn't mean it i'm sorry and uh it may sound very hard but uh firefighters uh, have to have to paint um those things because now suicide is becoming one of the leading causes of death for first responders and it's because we're going to so many of these scenes now uh, especially when it involves uh, youth. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're entirely right, Tim. I mean, for young people in those, uh, when young people, young drivers are crash involved, it's more often the other road users uh, who are the ones who uh, who are killed. And to your point, Anne-Marie, talking about kind of the ripple effects and how the community is impacted. And I think first responders are often forgotten as right. being most impacted because they see it way more than they should um, and through the course of their career and the long-term effects of seeing those crashes and PTSD on first responders is is one that we don't typically think about but yet they are certainly among the groups that are most impacted by crashes and, and most tragically uh, young people um, in the prime of their lives when when they're impacted. The stories that I hear are, oh, my favorite song came on. We turned up the radio. It was a wonderful time. And then it wasn't. Crashes go so quickly from a great time to uh, life-altering, can-never-take-it-back time. 
Um, and true, passengers are as much at risk. Robin and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. And in many places, people are, young people are putting off learning to drive, especially when they come from communities where there's good public transit and they don't necessarily need it. But the fact is that they're riding with someone. I mean, you can't always get to the show or the concert or to a friend's house with public transit. You have to get in the car with somebody. And if your teen is not the one who is, as a parent, if your teen is not the one who is learning to drive and under your care, then who are they riding with? And as Tim mentioned, I mean, often it's the passenger who is impacted. Um, so that's another thing that I think parents should be aware of. And, and this podcast is really intended for parents to talk about all of those kinds of things. Robin, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about some of the things that you see. Right. So to your point, Anne-Marie, with respect to delaying licensure, uh, you're exactly correct. We are seeing that. Whereas, you know, many of us, when we were younger, 16 was, it was that rite of passage. The first thing you do is go out and get your license. And today you're seeing young, younger people wait until they're 17, 18, 19 to get their license. Um, and one of the reasons uh, for that is the peer pressure that goes with driving. If you're the driver among your circle of friends, uh, then two things happen. One, everybody wants to drive with you uh, and be a passenger, but there's also that peer pressure in the car. Um, you know, drive a little faster. We're, we're listening to this song, turn up the music, uh, you know, pick up my friend. Uh, you know, I want to go here, I want to go there. And for young people driving, that can be a lot of a lot of pressure to deal with. So I think the most important thing for parents to really reinforce with their teens is that when they are driving, they are in charge. And what happens in the car is under their control and uh, encouraging them to speak up to their friends when, when that risk taking is being encouraged to say, no, that we're not doing that. Uh, you know, don't distract me with your phone. No, I can't have the music that loud. No, I need you to sit in your seat and, and not talk to me because as we talked about earlier, it's such a it's such a complicated task. And the other thing parents need to know is having passengers in the vehicle, young passengers in the vehicle with a young driver creates risk. And the more passengers, the more risk. Um, so for example, just having one passenger in the car, one young passenger increases your crash risk. When you add two or three, um, you know, it, it um, exponentially increases your risk. And for young people learning to drive, like in the first six months of licensure, a 16 year old has, uh, is six times more likely to crash than an adult driver. That's with an empty car, no impairment, no distraction, just uh, straight driving in that first six months at the age of 16, their crash risk is incredibly high. So for young people um, to recognize the responsibility of driving and for young drivers to be able to speak up confidently uh, to ensure that they have an environment that's safe to drive in is so important. That just sounds so easy. You don't speak up, but nobody wants to lose the ride. Nobody right. wants to piss off their friend. No, it's, you know, nobody wants to look like a wimp. So it's complicated. It's not a simple task. You know, I, th I think one of the really important things is that uh, people have to be introduced to, to driving uh, properly and, and with uh, methodology. I, I, I'll give you an example. I used to ride a motorcycle when I was young. I had a crash when I was 19. I made sure I could get back on. Then I didn't ride for about 35 years. 
So then I, I bought a bike again, and I went, I'm not comfortable with the fact that I was tough. So even though I've, I've got EVO training, emergency vehicle operation with air, I've got a class five license that allows me to drive. Before I drove my bike, what I did was I went and took uh, motorcycle lessons. And I learned a ton. Even though I had already ridden a motorcycle for a number of years, and it, it introduces things like when we're talking about youth and passengers in the cars, everyone in the eye when, when they talk. So what happens? They'll be driving along like this, and then they look directly at the passenger and speak to them. And that is one of the, just a, one of the very small examples of being taught how to, to drive. Like They have to understand, even though I'm looking at the windshield, the passenger can still hear me without me diverting my attention fully to there and, and losing sight of for instruction. Uh, I trained my, my sons how to drive. I trained them to EVO standards, okay? Not ordinary driving standards, emergency vehicle operation. It helped one of them, he's a firefighter now, but proper instruction, I, I believe, should be mandated. And, and I have no interest in driving schools. Like, you know, this isn't a partisan. They used to teach it here in BC in school. They used to have safe driving classes in school and I, I think that would be a wonderful way to introduce kids in a safe manner uh, under direct uh, supervision and not in a commercial sense. Um, yeah, it, it's coming in is easier. Learning it at the, at the front end is a whole lot easier. And uh, so just building on that, Tim, I think um, to your point about spending time in the vehicle with your with your sons as they're learning to drive. So driver education is a tremendous tool to teach young people the basics of driving. But parental involvement as teens learn to drive is equally important. And oh. we see that that is one of the, the factors that can increase the effectiveness of driver education. So the more time parents spend in their car, um, making sure that they're learning those proper techniques. And for some instances, it may be a good refresher course for parents driving. Um, I think that uh, is part of helping them build their confidence. So uh, to your point, Anne-Marie, when those teens are in the car, um, it gives the young driver something to fall back on is, is this is, you know, this is how my parents have taught me to drive, this is important, and there's always the fallback position of, if I do that, my parents aren't gonna let me have the car. Absolutely. Right? To, to really manage that conversation, because certainly for young people, it's hard to speak up, but it's hard the first time. The more you do it, the more comfortable you become with it, and your friends learn very quickly that that's just how it's going to be. They can walk or they can ride with you, but if they ride with you, they ride on your terms. Um, and, and I think it's important for young people to be confident, speaking up to their friends and having those conversations and for parents to be involved uh, in them learning to drive and encouraging those behaviors. Absolutely, and it, driving is very complicated as we've said, but we also, in Canada, we have four real seasons. And that means practicing all year round. It, what I've seen with uh, parents in practice, and practice is not 150 trips to Loblaws. It's deliberate practice on country roads, on city streets, interacting with trucks at high speed, interacting with subway, with the subways, <laughs> uh, streetcars, <laughs> You know, yeah, all of that. It, it's really varied, deliberate practice. 
And today we have roundabouts, we have double left turn lanes, it's complex. Some of the, the characteristics that you see in crashes, having attended so many crash scenes, so for young people, are there things that stand out in your mind as really top risks for them? A lot of, you know, speed is an obvious one, but they're, they're usually not just one thing that's associated, a singular. They also think, well, I passed my first level, now I know everything. And that, that's when they get really dangerous. Some police forces do a really interesting thing. And what they have to do is they have a driving instructor beside them in the front seat. They're in the thing and they have to talk about everything they observe as they're driving. So, and, and I'll tell you, if you try doing this, it is difficult. Yeah. So as you're driving along, you're going, okay, there's a stop sign on the right. Okay, this is a cross street. Oh, there's a chopper on the right-hand side. Okay, over on here, there's. it looks like there's a patch of water or ice. So I have to, and you have to continually talk about how the environment around you is changing, which means you are totally focused, looking forward all the time, using your, your, your um, maximum. And I'll tell you, you try doing that for two minutes, it is incredibly exhausting. And it's those kind of things that as, as you learn how to do them properly, uh, you avoid um, you avoid the stupid uh, mistakes that come with uh, familiarity of doing a task. I think it's a really good point. And, and we actually have an episode with Christine Raby, who is owns uh, driving schools, um, Apex driving schools in the, the Niagara region. And it's called commentary driving. And it's something that parents can do with 15, 16 year olds before they have a license by putting them in the passenger seat in the front and the parent starts with the commentary, what the parent sees. And, and then when they become more familiar, you turn it over to the, the passenger and they have, and it's not only, you know, you see the change in the speed limit, you see the light is turning yellow, you see a car that looks like it might exit the parking lot on your right and then predicting what that car might do. So it's a really excellent exercise and something that's very simple to do, but you're right, exhausted. Yeah. And I think it really underscores how complex driving is for yeah. all of those who take yeah. our ability to drive for granted and feel very comfortable do it. It's a good reminder as to really how much information there is, uh, there is to process. And if you've been driving for a period of time, you you don't realize how much you know. You right. like it's like walking. You don't concentrate on putting one foot in front of the other. That happens automatically. And we start to drive like that. And you're you're accepting information and making judgments without ever really thinking about them if you've been driving for a period of time. But that new driver, it's not the same. And right. they look like adults, but they are not when you're talking about the complexity of the task and how as adults we take it for granted, I think as parents in particular, we take it for granted. And the one thing that we're not aware of is that our young children are watching us and how we drive from a very, very young age in the car. So as a parent, if you have a tendency to speed or to use your phone uh, or to not wear your seatbelt, those are behaviors your young child picks up on and they're very likely to adopt those behaviors uh, as they drive, because I think as parents, we all know, do as I say, not as I do, that's not good enough. So from a very young age, parents have to be in tune with ensuring that when their children are watching them drive, that they're learning the right things and not the wrong things. 
and I, I think, you know, this year I just bought a brand new truck and uh, it's got- You're buying a lot of vehicles there, Tim. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you love and, to drive. <laughs> what they do is they, they take a lot of the functions that you can do by feel and they change them into something on the screen. And like I said, it, it's a 12 inch screen. That damn thing's huge. And, uh, and my, one of my sons also has a Tesla. It has one button, the four-way flasher. Well, the changing over of being able to not look down and hit my heater and change it by feel is now, if I miss one button by about a quarter of an inch, I hit the wrong button. And that screen is in, in, incredibly distracting because everything is key. As a young uh, I would recommend as a young driver, they should block those damn screens right out. That's yeah. it. You know, here I've been driving for um, an awful long time in the 50 plus years. And uh, and that screen uh, still uh, about four months later is incredibly distracting to me. And I have to really work. And sometimes if I'm going to do, I pull off to the side of the road, put it in park, make sure I punch the right buttons and then off I go again. It, uh, those and the Tesla one is horrible. It's uh, you, you you can't do anything without looking at that screen and and making sure you hit the right button and that. Even that becomes fart, the, even a bigger problem for young people because um, they'll, they're very quick to tell you, okay, you might have a little more driving experience. I hear this quite often. You might have a little more driving experience, but I have great texting ability. I know technology. So they don't have the same um, concerns about using the technology because they've lived with it all their lives. They're very, very comfortable with it, but it still is a distraction. It till, still takes their eyes off the road, their minds off the task of driving. And so I agree with you. I think that uh, those screens can be a terrible distraction. Right. And I think we, uh, I mean, research has shown that we often underestimate how much time our eyes is, our eyes are off oh, the yeah. road. So we think, you know, looking at our phone or looking at that screen, we think it's like one or two seconds. Uh, but we know from studies that more than two seconds with your eyes off the road does increase your crash risk. And the studies that they have done asking people to estimate how much time they were looking away versus how many time, how much time they actually were. It's a difference between like two seconds and, you know, seven seconds or 10 seconds or 12 seconds. So we tend to really underestimate those glances away and how long they actually are. Well, and physiology really plays in here also is one of the things they teach you because you, you know, on a motorcycle, is and and if you ride a bicycle it's the same you go and you steer where your eyes go yeah so as i'm looking to my right to look at the screen the connection is that i will start to drift towards the right okay so in bc that can be a bloody big cliff yeah. or it can be a, a great big tree now on the prairies it might be a little different you might woof off into the wheat but but um you know, it, it's those people have to be taught that when I'm looking down for two seconds to my right, my hands are going to start turning to the right. 
But you know what, Tim, I'm really glad you say that because I have always thought that Uh, because I I agree with you. You drive, your hands take you where your eyes are going. And if you're holding the phone down to the left or holding it down to the right, I'm sure that, but I've never seen any statistics about that. But I do believe that to be true. And so to hear you say that kind of validates something that I already believe. Yeah, that's actually taught in the motorcycle course because you shift your hands just a little bit, especially on the wide parts. You know, you're going, you're going, you're exiting stage right pretty quick. And depending on your speed too, at, at a high speed, just that little movement of the steering wheel can take you off in a trajectory that can get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So far, we're, we're only talking about steering wheels. You know, more and more, I don't, I don't know about in Ontario, but more and more people are turning to motorcycles and bicycles on the road. And it is, you know, you're even seeing people with their left hand riding a, a motorcycle at 60, 70 K at their phone. Oh my and God, I've seen it. It is incredible. And, and same with bicycles, you know, it's the same thing. Now you got those motorized scooters. Oh yeah, God. yeah. <laughs> It doesn't take much balance to fire one of those babies into the oncoming traffic. eh? And that's from two perspectives. If we're talking about the new drivers, that's something that they have to be aware of that can come into their range or as a driver on a scooter or, you know, so it affects uh, young people from both sides. And I think that uh, raises an important uh, point, Anne-Marie, about sharing the road long time ago it was kind of just cars and and pedestrians and and some bicycles but certainly with the uh with the changes in the last few years and certainly with the pandemic and people driving less and choosing other forms of active transportation today on the road yes you're much more likely to encounter other types of of road users and they're certainly much more vulnerable and that's why there's been such a push to reduce speed and i think for young people learning the importance of managing your speed um, so that you can control the vehicle is is really an important one because those people walking and you riding their bikes and riding scooters they don't have that hard protective exterior so when we are driving a vehicle which is a a huge heavy moving mass that does not stop quickly or easily um, we're really putting at risk uh, the other people on the road and and the attentiveness that we pay uh, in terms of what's going on around us is so important more so important today than ever for that reason yeah i i heard cars once described as um, metal bombs filled with gasoline that we hurtled down a road at 120 kilometers an hour and i don't totally agree with that but it is frightening it's um and then we put people on top of them right so i think that we which brings up another point that robin and i were talking about a little bit earlier and that is about parents and the choices they make as far as vehicles for young people and i've heard from parents for a long time well you know we'll put them in an old beater for the first year or two and that way if the car gets a little scratched doesn't really matter it's an old car anyway we'll junk it at the end of two years robin maybe comment on that 
Right. So I think that's a common philosophy for a lot of parents uh, because uh, cars are expensive. Um, and we think as young people are learning to drive that, that you know, uh, getting them an older car might be better. But I think what parents do need to think about is a lot of older vehicles don't have the safety features today. And a lot of the safety features that we have on vehicles, the advanced driver assistance systems, are very sophisticated and they have done a tremendous job in reducing crashes. Um, and for that reason, uh, you know, driving those vehicles were so much more safer and the government has urged the rollout of these features, some of these features across all vehicles much more quickly because of the, the crash protection. So as parents are teaching their young people to drive, I think it's important that they also think about the safety of the vehicle that they're in um, because at the end of the day, what you want home safely at the end of the day is your child. Uh, and not necessarily your car if you if you had to choose. So I think parents thinking through safety features and the, the protections offered by the vehicle their children are driving and of course spending time with them again in the vehicle, be familiar, help them build their confidence, give them lots of opportunity to practice in all kinds of weather and road conditions um, and we can be less concerned about crashes and more concerned about teaching them to be good drivers and to be safe. And some jurisdictions are starting to look at the, the capacity of the vehicle also. So out here, when you're driving along and you see an L or an N on a, a brand new Audi sports car uh, that'll do a couple hundred K easily, um, you know, uh, some reasonableness with, you, you don't go out and buy the kid a, a high part, like a, in, in Tula's uh, example, a five liter Mustang right off the bank. Okay, and you, you, you have to have the capacity that matches the experience. And uh, you, you see a lot of brand new cars with an L or an N on, and they are high-speed vehicles. And it's just damn dangerous. Yeah. I think that just because you can afford that car doesn't mean you should buy it because it's um, anything that ha is too high-powered is not only um, dangerous because a crash at 30 kilometers is very different from a crash at 150 kilometers an hour. So there is that, but there's also, when we're talking about peer pressure that we were talking about earlier and, and, you know, Oh, come on, you can take that guy. Um, you know, let's see what this baby can do. Yeah. You get into those kinds of competitions. It, even going back to your story at the beginning there, Tim, this young man kind of showing off, for his for other students um so toning it down getting a reasonable vehicle we actually one of our episodes is on that we did an episode with um becca wiest from the insurance institute for highway safety and they're the crash test dummy people and talk a lot about best vehicles for teens one interesting thing i think it was interesting for me was um at one time when my daughter was young and and Clearly, I jumped into this way more than most people do. Um, but when my daughter was just learning to drive, when she just got her license, she was about 17, 18, and we needed a new vehicle. We had one vehicle that was 10 years old. It had been a top safety pick in its day, but 10 years old. And we got a new vehicle. Well, we gave the new vehicle to her because it had better safety and we were the experienced drivers, my husband and I. But when I went to insure it, the interesting thing was the insurance rates on both vehicles were exactly the same because the older one, I didn't need to put collision on because if it got smacked, it didn't matter. But the other one had better occupant protection. Yeah. 
And that's really what the insurance is about. That's where the big bucks are. You can 50, 60,000, 40,000, 5,000, 2,000, you can replace the vehicle, um, but you can't replace the occupants. So I thought that was, it, it, I was quite fascinated that the insurance for the same, the 10 year old car and the brand new car was the same. Well, and to your point about speed and, and how we often think about speeding in terms of extreme speeding, and certainly with the pandemic, we've seen media reports across the country of some of that extreme speeding. But for many drivers, you know, going 10 kilometers over or 20 kilometers over is not not that big a deal. And I think as adults, um, we underestimate crash risk uh, with speed. And it's important to think about what's the message you're giving your child as they're learning to drive that it's okay to speed because going just 10 kilometers over the speed limit doubles your crash risk. And when you're going 20 kilometers over the speed limit, that increases your crash risk sixfold. So we often wow. think about speed in terms of significant differences in speed. And the reality is very small increases in speed have you know significant consequences for crash risk um, and the damage that gets done uh, you know at those higher speeds and and whether or not people are able to survive a collision or not. Well, it's interesting also to to look at the the other way. What happens? Uh, uh, there's a major road that uh, I live just off of 16th Avenue, and it is a um, it's a it's a, a a fundamental link between uh, uh, gravel beds and Surrey and that. So there's a lot of gravel trucks that, that travel on this two lane road, okay, one each direction. And what happens is because of the hills, the loads slow down, which which gets the people as they start to line up uh, impatient. And literally what they do is when they hit an inter intersection, they have the left-hand turn slots, they hammer the, the accelerator slot on on their side shoot through the intersection into the oncoming left-hand turn slot and switch over back into the lane so slow moving vehicles create impatience which as you get into more and more of an urban setting uh it creates dangerous situations and people go even i can get this thing and and it is incredible some of the crashes that we're seeing on on some of these roads because of the slow moving vehicles creating impatience for the faster one. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point uh, as drivers in the protective exterior of our vehicle, we often feel like we're in control and we know what we're gonna do. So we feel like we're in control. And the reality is you don't control anything else on the road. You don't control who stops in front of you. You don't control who pulls out to go left. Uh, you don't control slow moving vehicles. And I think um, that's really an important uh, takeaway for, for not just for young people, but for drivers of all ages to understand is when you're in those situations, you you really have to ask yourself, how confident are you that everyone else is going to um, act on the road in the way that you expect them to? Because I think anyone who drives at any point uh, realizes that that's, there's always that unexpected. Uh, so back to what we talked about earlier, Henry, that unexpected, um, you just can't anticipate when it's going to happen and that's why you have to to be alert at all times but also follow those rules of the road um you know to to keep everyone safe 
And if we take a situation like that and the parent is driving and they deke around this vehicle the way you're talking about, Tim, what's going to happen a year or two down the road when that teen is in the driver's seat and they've seen their parents do it, um, seemed like no big deal, but they have a whole lot less experience. It's I, I think that's one thing that I would really like parents to take away is that how you drive is exactly the high bar, is the high bar for how your teen is going to drive, but with a lot less experience. And I say the high bar because they believe they really have mastered technology, but they don't have the experience of driving for so many years. And um, they'll do, they'll follow their parents. One of the things that I tell parents is that if they have been using their phone or if they have been deking around that dump truck, um, I don't expect your kids to realize that you're changing your behavior. You need to have that conversation. You know, I've been doing this for so many years. I've been lucky. And I realize that now you are the most important thing in my life. And I'm just beginning today. I am changing this. I will never do that again. And uh, because I want to be a good role model for you. And we have to have those conversations. Don't expect them to realize that beginning two weeks ago, Thursday, you put your phone down. You're not picking it up anymore. They'll remember that you picked it up all the time. So uh, I think we need to have some of those conversations and, and really have a little bit of a reality check about our own driving. And I think uh, to your point, Anne-Marie, about the, the time spent in the car. So parents often think... Um, you know, they'll do the required number of hours uh, of training, so to speak. And yet we know from research, uh, you know, that a, a minimum of 50 hours and in some jurisdictions, it's it's not in Canada, but in other countries, it's up to 120 hours, um, which really uh, underscores how important it is for, for teens to have that time in the car, supervised time with a parent and to be learning, because that's really how long it takes you uh, to learn to become a good a driver and to form those habits. And the more time parents spend in the car with a young person, the more likely those habits uh, that they develop at that point are going to be the ones that stick, um, that will keep them safe. That's right. And make sure that the habits you're passing on are really good ones. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, you know, I, if, if somebody isn't sure, and, but you know what, I, as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about other things people don't know, and that is airbags, right? Um, I started driving well before we had airbags. Well, I've seen people driving so close to that steering wheel that if that airbag ever deployed, yeah. they'd, you know, they, their chest would be crushed. Mm -hmm. I've seen people, you know, the seatbelt is too uncomfortable. It's rubbing my neck. They put the, the shoulder strap over their shoulder. All those kinds of things. We really need to, if we're going to be teaching young people how to drive, we really need to clean up our own acts first. So some of the statistics around uh, seatbelts, uh, just between 1990 and, and 2000, your seatbelts saved about 11,000 lives. Wow. Your seatbelt you know, irrespective of all the new technology on vehicles and the advanced safety features, your seat belt is still the most important thing uh, that keeps you safe in a crash because it keeps you from being ejected from the vehicle uh, and it keeps you in the car where it's going to be safer than being ejected, particularly uh, at a high speed. So 
yes, the, the seat belt and learning how to, to do it and do it every time and all of our safety checks, turning off our phone, checking our mirrors, all those things should be part and parcel, just like getting in the car and putting on your seat belt before you, before you start the ignition. Absolutely. When it comes to airbags, it's really interesting because there are deadly weapons in some aspects. We just need to oh, be God. smart about how we use them. And that means being far enough back that you're protected. I remember years ago not understanding them. And we'd go to Ikea and end up with 16 boxes in the car. So I'm sitting in the front seat kind of squish toward the front because I've got all this stuff behind me. And um, if that airbag ever deployed, it could have killed me. Well, an example of that too is is uh, you you can't put a child seat in the front seat, uh, you know, right. and especially forward facing because that will kill, it, it not might, it will kill the child in that seat. Uh, it has that kind of impact. and. Those kind of things, safety devices can bite you. They're necessary, like seat belts. God, anyone that doesn't put a seat belt on is committing suicide. But um, uh, you, you know, you got to respect the 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 safety features in a vehicle. Otherwise, they'll turn into uh, biting you in the ass. In the last 10 years, vehicles have changed so much. So now you have people with driving their new cars off the lot and things are buzzing and things are beeping and things are, you know, vibrating and and people don't often take the time to learn about those safety features. And I, I know, Tim, we've talked about this is the time to learn about your safety features is not as you're losing control of your vehicle. Right. So for parents and part of that. Um, that exercise as well as with driver educators, spending the time to learn what features you have and how they work and what are some of the prompts uh, that they give you. So, you know, when you hear them, you're not kind of looking around wondering what the heck's going on, what did I miss? Because uh, like I said, that's not really the time you want to figure out um, how those safety features work. And one thing that, that you know, I think is, is really, um, important to discuss when you're talking about new drivers is the unpredictability of uh, people now like you're driving along sometimes and it kills me when i see a parent with a toddler and the toddler's walking on the curbside and the parent's walking yeah. is, is walking on yeah. the opposite side because they'll shoot out and 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 it's something that i i think new drivers have to that's why those two seconds are so important because a skateboarder can fall, hit a, a little rock and fall, or or a kid can just jolt out of from between the cars. And the unpredictability of pedestrians and the lack of them paying attention with distracted walking is really absolutely, absolutely. I completely agree with you. The other thing that uh, is parking lots. People who don't have the hands of their kids in parking lots. And of course, the kids are below the, the back uh, thing, unless you've got a backup camera and you're actually using it, you don't see them. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I don't know. I, I think that really part of the purpose of this podcast is to help parents understand how complicated it all is. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, just going back and forth uh, to church or to the grocery store is not enough. I mean, this is a complex task and there are so many things we can't control that we really need to invest the time. I talked to a parent once uh, and I was talking about driving school and, and the importance of 
picking a good driving school, which is another episode in this. But it's uh, talking about the importance of that. And at the end of it all, he came up to me and he said, Anne-Marie, I spent $300 today on a hockey stick for my son and never thought twice about it. And I was shopping for the cheapest driving school I could find. And it's like, wow, give your head a shake. This is something they're going to be doing for the next 60 years. So you want them to get a grounding of really good skills and all driving schools are not the same. So there is that. Yeah. One of the things that I find very frustrating in this field is that if you share information or open conversations that get people thinking, increase skills, they do a better job, and you avoid a crash, you never know. And when you think about the difference between a, a near miss and a collision, you know, that's measured in, in millimeters and, and milliseconds. And that, you know, two seconds um, that we talked about earlier, giving yourself that extra time to try and avoid a collision because unlike video games, you, you know, in real life, you don't get the extra lives, you don't get the duo or do-overs and you can never take it back. And, and it does impact you forever. In the research field, we talk about the issue of compiscuity, which is how easy it is to see that. And I think as drivers on the road, um, particularly young drivers, you're used to seeing cars. So you're looking for a car, and particularly when you're learning to turn at intersections, you learn to judge the speed and distance of a car coming towards you based on its size. And you see a lot of collisions with motorcycles simply because they're smaller you assume they're further away, you assume they're not traveling as fast, and you're more inclined to turn in front of them thinking you have that time, uh, when in fact you don't. And it's really just because of that smaller size. And then on the flip side of that, with, with larger trucks, right, there's all different types of vehicles on the roads. Yeah, and then, I mean, we talked a little bit about behavior, some of the behaviors around driving, um, that, uh, and going back to teens in that first vehicle. I mean, I remember, like, the prestige that you felt the first time that you, it didn't even have to be your own car, it could be your parents' car, right, that you're the one driving to school, and everybody wants to go for lunch together, that kind of thing. And so there's a tendency to have, you know, we tend to think whether it's speeding or seatbelts, it's about the ticket, right? It's uh, don't want to get a ticket, so hide, get in the trunk, um, share a seatbelt, those kinds of things to avoid the ticket. But it's not about the ticket. The ticket is to reinforce good behavior. Yeah, the ticket is the least of your worries. Yeah, Uh, that's right. I think we need to start rethinking about driving. It is a very serious task. It can be fun. I mean, oh my gosh, you remember as a kid, the road, the, you know, when you went on a road trip with friends, I mean, the most fun in the world. And but it's fun, it's exciting, it's, um, you can go places, and our world is a lot smaller now. You can drive in China or Israel or New York City. Well, New York City's a little tricky, (laughs) but you can drive anywhere, right? It's, our world is a small place. If you've got a grounding of good skills, you can drive anywhere. Yeah. Well, and particularly, I mean, you were talking earlier about the seasons and learning to drive in all the different seasons. And I was thinking the season that we that we didn't talk about was construction. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because it it used to be kind of a a summer thing. And now it's a year round thing. And for young people learning to drive, I mean, the there's a lot of variations in construction scenes for particular reasons. So, you know, 
being uh, slower around uh, around those construction zones and learning whether you're looking for you know signalized uh, directions whether there's flag people out on the road and and most importantly really slowing down when you go past them right because people that is their workplace and construction workers like first responders are just at very high risk uh, on the road and and speed and distraction are two really significant factors that uh, that impact their their workplace so to speak you you talked about slowing down around the construction zone and that's for sure but in a lot of those like heading north in the summer on the 400 you have a whole zone that's now 80 instead of 100 and people are still doing 120 it yeah. is it's and i think the thinking is that we're uh, we're a mass of cars they can't stop us all right yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not about the ticket it's about what can happen at that speed when there's something else going on on the road. Right, and when everyone else is, is doing that faster speed, um, it creates the sense that you have to go with traffic, right? And you often hear that argument made. Yes. And yet in reality, what it is you're doing is you're pushing people who are not comfortable driving faster to drive faster. Um, and you know, I think it's important that we we focus on speed and understand the consequences with speed because at the end of the day, I don't think any of us are willing to die to get to our destination. And, and yet, to die speed, to get that's there. That's what you're doing. Yeah, to get there three minutes early. There are all kinds of studies about that. You know, by the time you look at the everybody slows down, everybody speeds up, it's a couple of minutes difference. Yeah. And how much does that matter to you? It's a very small uh, time benefit, like literally in minutes. Um, but going, like I said earlier, the 10 kilometers or the 20 kilometers over the over the speed limit, you're tremendously increasing your crash risk for two minutes. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you got to ask yourselves, is it worth it? And is it worth it to be teaching your child that that's a good decision to make? Exactly. I mean, there is. There's an alarming amount of uh, first responders that are killed every year yep. um, at uh, at collision scenes as they're trying to do their job. And, uh, you know, like uh, laws around when you see, a, especially a police vehicle that has pulled over a vehicle and, and the lights are on, you lower your speed. And it, it comes down to respect yep. and, and respecting everyone else that is on the road. And what that creates is, uh, you know, there's nothing better than when you're putting your signal on and someone slows down just a hair so you can come in instead of jumping ahead and trying to get in. And it's those kind of behaviors that more and more now as people are, are crunching for time because they're so damn busy now. To your point, Tim, slowing down, I mean, the, the officers and the first responders are out there to make the roads safer and we really need to respect what they're doing on the road because they're doing it for us uh, at the end of the day. So we should, uh, you know, respond in kind uh, and make sure that they stay safe. It's a real concern uh, of the, the whoever is uh, the OIC, the officer in command, about efficiency of getting this person out in a timely manner versus uh, uh, maintaining the safety of first the crew and then yourself as you're trying to slow people down and i'll tell you it's a major job of a of a of an officer uh to 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 do that juggle until uh you know thank god the police come on scene eh? one of the things you mentioned there tim is the golden hour and that is that within that hour 
after an incident happens, a crash happens, um, than to get that person to medical assistance. And harder in some areas than others. If we're talking about rural areas, if we're talking about Northern Ontario, much harder um, to get them the help they need, which is another reason to slow down and be more aware because it's higher risk when you can't uh, get to help within that hour. You know, as loud as the siren, sirens and, uh, and different sounding devices are on emergency vehicles, it is incredible how many times you come up they can't hear you over the thump, 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 thump. True, and, true. And the bass. And, yep. And, and especially in a fire truck, like we're the most visible. Like they're big vehicles. You know, God help those poor ambulance and those cops that are in smaller vehicles trying to whistle their way through. They, they, they did a study on fire engines in Vancouver, your speed of an engine responding in Vancouver Code three is 20 kilometers. Wow. That's as fast as you can go between going left and going right, not getting out of the way and not yielding. And, and that's, that's how slow, uh, and, and that really impacts on whatever emergency you're going. Well, the other thing that that brings up, this is another conversation that parents need to have. Um, it's what do you do when you hear the siren? Um, what, cause I see, I hear sirens and in a lot of cases, nobody knows what to do and nobody's pulling over. Um, it's, so those are other conversations that you need to have. Um, and I, there was a clip that was done by one of the insurance companies and a, a siren is coming up behind and the new driver, the learning driver is in the, the driver's seat and the father is in the other one. And he says, oh, there's a siren pull over. And she says, which way? So it's like, not only like giving a, a, you know, an, a, an instruction, but a clear instruction. It's a pull over to the right, signal to the right. It's, it's thinking that way and helping them understand that in an emergency situation, this is what they need to do. When you're a driver of an emergency vehicle, it is a, uh, you wanna talk about um, being aware of your surroundings. Uh, <laughs> you see some of the strangest behavior on the face of this planet. But that brings up the point too, that you need to know what the local rules are. Yeah. And it, it, that comes back to training. Don't expect that a young person is going to intuitively know what to do. So we have covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do hope that this um, helps parents understand how much there is. I mean, we we barely, we talked about a lot of things, but we barely scratched the surface. Yeah. And the point is that this is a really dangerous task that it does, uh, it requires some attention. I, you know, parents, when my daughter was young, she took piano, she had a math tutor, she had, uh, she played soccer. All of those things are cost money, right? And we devote a lot of time and, and enjoy doing it. And we want the best for them. This is something again, and I said it like three times now, but they'll be doing for 60 years. And it's something that will impact their lives. So it's worth the investment and teaching them, making sure, not necessarily teaching them yourself, but a lot of practice and making sure that you have the conversations about cell phones and technology and doing other stuff behind the wheel. Uh, talking about speed and, and saying, you know, I'm really sorry. I have been speeding. 
I effective today, that's changing because you matter so much to me. I need to be a good role model for you. And I don't want to be putting my life in danger or yours. So today that will change. And I think we all need to kind of reevaluate where we are and uh, to make sure that our young people make it to their old age and still driving and exploring the world. So thank you very much, both of you. I really appreciate your time. Um, we talked about a lot of different things and I, I hope that parents will stay tuned and watch some of the other, watch or listen, because we're uh, providing this in a couple of different ways um, to the other episodes about um, things like best vehicles for teens, about starting them off with driving school, how to pick a good one, or some of the things you need to cover if you're going to be to do it yourself. I mean, everybody understands, you know, kind of what's possible within their realm. But this is an investment um, of your time, and it's absolutely worth it. And thank you both very, very much. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Thanks for having us. Before You Hand Over the Keys was brought to you by Teens Learn to Drive. Check out our website at teenslearntodrive.com for more information, videos, and resources.